If you were introducing God to a friend, what name would you use for him? Early on, when God was introducing himself to the Israelites at Mount Sinai, this is what he said. This is from Exodus 34. Do not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. I bet you didn't think of that name. Here, meet Jealous. We know that in human relationships, jealousy can be a really destructive thing. And it leads people to envy others or to want to keep something completely and solely for themselves and not share it with anyone else. But God is jealous in a very different way to what is common with humans. God longs for people to live in a proper relationship with him. He, he longs for the people he made to be true to him and to the relationship of, of maker and creature. He longs for that because he knows it's the only way to live life in the way that's been intended for us, life at its best. It, God's jealousy is a loving jealousy, as our jealous and a, and a purity that our jealousy never can have. It's a loving jealousy in which God plans to shower blessings on his beloved people. Last week in our first sermon from the Old Testament prophet Joel, we saw jealous God living up to his name. Do you remember Dave's illustration about the diamond on the black cloth and how he complained that I'd allocated him the black cloth of the sermon series and by implication kept the diamonds for myself? What made last week the black cloth sermon, you'll remember, was that it was about God's judgment. Remember that the people had turned away from God. We weren't told exactly how in Joel chapter 1, but we can pretty well guess what's fairly typical of Israel throughout the Old Testament is they turned to worshipping the gods and idols of other nations. And often along with that also tended to come They're ignoring God's laws about caring for the poor, about justice and fairness in business and the legal system and about faithfulness in marriage. These things led to the black clouds of the locust plagues. And did you notice towards the end of the reading from Lisa then, uh, God describes himself as at the head of the army. Uh, It it was God's judgment on on the people. It was very much God at work. The Lord, whose name is Jealous, cannot just stand and watch while people push him aside and look to false gods as if uh, they are the source of the blessed life in the land that God has given them. The locust plague was terrible and destructive. It led to a famine which was unmissable for every single Israelite. Yet there was a silver lining in the hem of that black cloth. Because the locust plague wasn't the end, it merely pointed to the final day of the Lord, as it's called in the Old Testament, when he was expected to finally come and deal with his enemies. Better that Israel had a taste of God's judgment now, while it was still time for them to change their ways and get back to living as God's people. And what we see from chapter 2, verse 12 in today's material is that 
the destruction, that final destruction, isn't inevitable if the people, having had a taste of God's judgment with the locusts, will turn back to God, will show repentance. God actually takes the initiative here and literally commands the people to approach him for their forgiveness and restoration. So have a look again at verse 12, so page 782. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Here is God's loving jealousy at work. They've treated him badly. They've probably been basically spiritually adulterous by looking to another God or gods. The Lord's within his rights to reject them, but he gives them another chance. Why, why does he do that? Well, it's verse 13 again, halfway through. It's because he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. He relents from sending calamity. We can wonder and be troubled by God's fierce judgment, but like the, the diamond on the black cloth, what stands out when you look at these chapters is his grace and compassion. He's abounding in love. He's abounding in love. That word abounding is a beautiful word, isn't it? It's a it's a sense of no limit. I'm sure there's a limit to my love, and depending on who you are, the limit's further out. But not God. He he doesn't run out of love. People t- turn away from him. So it's not to say that he doesn't draw a line when people reject him. The Old Testament describes the Lord as being jealous for his name as well as his people. So if people ignore and dishonour him, they fall under his righteous anger. That's what happened to the people in Joel's time. But the Lord's jealousy for his people for that relationship with his people, leads him to give them another chance. Isn't it sad that people sometimes reject God because of his examples of judgment in the Bible? Maybe you've um, spoken to someone who will tell you that uh, they wouldn't be interested in Christianity. You look at the God of the Old Testament and the things he lets happen or he makes happen. The sad thing about that is they ignore the many more numerous examples of God being gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. It was always here, it appears in Joel, it was always God's plan A to offer to forgive the Israelites. That's what the jealous God is like. He's abounding in love. He's gracious and compassionate. But notice, they needed to want reconciliation with God. They needed to be willing, verse 12, to return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. That external stuff like fasting and weeping and mourning over their sin isn't as important, of course, as it being heartfelt repentance. Return to me with all your heart. Or as it says there in verse 13, rend your heart and not your garments. Now, rend uh, means tear. So it's no use making a big show of repentance, of tearing your clothes, as happened in Israel sometimes, 
when confronted by God, it's no use doing that if that's all you do, if you're just going through and you're just going through the motions for a show. God isn't fooled, even if people in church would be. We'd be rather startled, I think. God sees the heart. Israel is being called to a heartfelt sorrow over their sin and a a genuine turning away from that and back to God. I've been struggling, really struggling with what what does it mean in practice for us to rend our heart? I got to thinking of those expressions we use where we set our heart on something, something uh, we really want and we're really focused on. We say we've set our heart on them. And And I was thinking if you set your heart on something, well, then if you pull yourself away from that, you tear yourself away from that. You know, you're really engrossed in something and I had to tear myself away from it. I'm thinking that to rend our heart is to tear ourselves away from loving some idol or sin and turn back to God for forgiveness and, and a fresh start. God is jealous. He, he wants their heart to be set on him on knowing and pleasing him, not on themselves or other gods. We all need to take this as a warning, don't we, for when it comes to our confession prayer here at church. Today's the first Sunday of the month, so we're going to do our communion together and we'll do our confession prayer at the beginning of that. And, and it's a prayer you've prayed many times. So it'd be really easy to go through the motions, mouth the words, not really think about it, sort of tearing your clothes but not your heart. Let's not just mouth words when we pray, when we uh, do these prayers together. Let's think of God. Let's uh, focus on God. And if we find it's hard to do that. Maybe that's because we've actually set our heart on other things. And so when you catch yourself doing that, speak to God in that moment and say, Lord, uh, help me rend my heart. Help me focus on you and, and find my joy in you and not whatever. We, we need to have hearts that um, are given to God, not, not to these other things, just like the people in Joel's time needed to do as well. It was interesting that the Israelites were taught by Joel not to be presumptuous when they returned to the Lord. And we should never think of God as like one of our kitchen appliances, you know, a machine where you just press the right right button and it'll do our bidding, generally. So look at verse 14. Joel says, having bid them to rend their heart to the Lord the one who's compassionate and gracious. He's sort of got a qualification, doesn't he? But who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. Given what Joel's already said about God's loving character, they probably had a pretty good idea that he would respond favourably if they responded properly to him. But uh, Joel, it's not our place to uh, tell God what to do. Though, unlike the Israelites, and as I've struggled a bit with this this week, this little verse, because unlike the Israelites, we have great New Testament promises that we can trust that God has already made. They didn't have the promise here that he was going to forgive them in this situation, but we have promises like this one in 1 John chapter 1. John writes, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins 
and purify us from all unrighteousness. And that's a great assurance, isn't it? That you know that when you do the wrong thing, you know that because of the Lord Jesus and his death, God has dealt with your sin and God promises here that he will forgive us. Of course, uh, again, it's coming with a, a heart that, that's true to God when, when you do that, not just going through the motions. So maybe we've got a little bit better than they did. Uh, we shouldn't be presumptuous about God doing the things we ask or want, but in this area of confession, uh, we've got great promises to rely on, which is wonderful. Well, it seems that the command to return to the Lord is taken seriously. Joel sets in the subsequent verses from verse 15 to 17 to organise the people to have this massive church service. Imagine it was open air as a sacred assembly of the whole nation. You can tell that it's the whole nation, that it's everyone. When you look in verse 16 and you see from the elders to the children nursing at the breast, the oldest to the youngest, everyone needs to be there. When in verse 17, on behalf of the people, the priests pray for God's mercy. So the people have been called, rend their hearts, come back to God. Stop living for and loving other things. And then the prayer, verse 17, Spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? When a nation's crops fail or are destroyed by locusts and there's famine in the land... In that world of that time, other nations are apt to mockingly conclude that, oh, their God isn't very powerful. Their God is impotent and weak, or he's not there. Well, Israel's learnt the hard way, haven't they, that that's very much not the true, not true. God is very powerful. He is not weak. He sent the locusts, and he's very much there. The mocking of the nations uh, will be returned to. Uh, in chapter 3 of Joel. But for now, there is good news because it seems that uh, God hears their prayers, that the people do rend their heart and God hears their prayers because look at verse 18. Then the Lord, then, I should put the emphasis there, then the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. There's that word jealous again. God is jealous and he is going to act to improve his people's very difficult circumstances following the locusts. It's fantastic. They've woken up to their sin. They've come back to him. And because God is compassionate and gracious, he can't stay angry with them. And he kindly moves to forgive them. And it's certain. Whereas in verse 14 it was, he may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. Look at verse 19. I'm sending you grain, new wine and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. And never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. Things are going to be so good that they'll go from being the scorn of the nations to the envy of the nations. The locusts will be driven away into the desert and the sea and then in the following verses there, you hear about trees starting to bear fruits again, following the rains that return at the appropriate times. And 
then are the crops being able to be sown and harvested and stored for consumption? It's this picture of abundant blessing. In, you notice verse 24, for example. The threshing floors will be filled with grain and the vats will overflow with new wine and with oil. Here is God being jealous again. He's jealous for the land and so what does he do? He blesses it abundantly. When we think jealous, we think take and keep. When God thinks jealous, part of his character, because he's compassionate and gracious, is to give. God's jealousy is to shower his people with good blessings, raising them to great heights and and not keep them in the poverty and want that they, they were experiencing. He is jealous for all their loyalty and love. That's finite and so should not be wasted on another God. He's jealous for the relationship, but then he's jealous to bless them. And he pours his blessing out on those who worship him properly. And then, verse 27, the jealous God will have made his love and claim for Israel very clear. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. God hasn't abandoned Israel In fact, unlike the other nations who worship a God that is nothing, he's the one and only God and he's very much in their midst. Up to verse 27, it's all material blessings that God promises. Next week, we'll see some amazing spiritual blessings promised by God to his loved people, which means this week... We need to be very careful how we apply this passage to ourselves because there's churches where a passage like this will become the basis for teaching that God promises you material blessings. That if you'd only rend your heart and have a correct relationship with God, then he promises to bless you. And if you have any struggle I should have said promises only to bless you. And if you have any struggle in your life, like sickness or unemployment or difficult finances, then it's because of your sin. Or they'll teach that Christians will not in this life face battles and opposition, only victory if they have a correct relationship with God. That sort of teaching comes from lies, not from the Bible. It's a misuse of the Bible, of passages like this. The first thing to say when you think about it is we're not the Israelite people of Joel's day. So we can't take these promises that are made to them when they rend their hearts following the locust plague. We can't take these promises and expect a fulfilment now without something else to confirm to us that they apply to us too. It's interesting next week We'll see that something else with the the promises of spiritual blessing from verse 28. Next week, we'll see how the New Testament takes those promises, and it's in particular Peter at his sermon at Pentecost and says that these verses from Joel are being fulfilled today. But more of that next week. For these particular promises of material blessing, we don't have a promise of our own or a signal in the New Testament that they're fulfilled. 
And it's also worth thinking what exactly we are promised about material wealth in the New Testament. In our recent money series, what did we see? Well, we saw there was a promise to provide our basic needs. So, as God cares for the birds of the air and the flowers or the lilies of the field, he'll provide for you, O you of little faith. Remember Jesus' words in Luke 12. And what else did we see? We also saw another promise in regard to our wealth. Do you remember what it was? It was uh, the one in 2 Corinthians that God will provide generously for us so we can be generous to others. God will provide what we need to be generous. There was no promise to make us rich or healthy materially. Should God do that, then praise him and serve him with your wealth and health. Not saying he he can't, but it's not a promise that if we don't get it, we then feel that there's something wrong with us. That's the problem with churches like that. Uh, uh, Catherine uh, knows a lady. Uh, the man, her husband, uh, were in a church where that was the emphasis of the teaching and he struggled in his work to uh, be successful and the lady actually said, oh, he doesn't go to church anymore because He feels a failure and he feels uh, that everyone else uh, uh, rejects him because of not being more successful. That's a disaster, isn't it? That sort of thinking. But it happens. Does the misuse of the Bible mean we shouldn't see, though, our material wealth as coming from the Lord? Of course not. We're dependent on God for rain and sunshine, to grow food, to provide water for drinking as well as for agriculture and industry. We depend on God for our health and our ability to work. We depend on God for everything. So we do well to respond as the Israelites are urged to do. If you look through verses 21 to 27, they're exhorted to not be afraid of the future, to trust God, to be glad and rejoice, to be glad to rejoice in the Lord your God for all the things he provides. That we, can, we can certainly copy that, can't we? Thankfulness should be our trade as it should have been theirs after what God was doing for them. And ultimately we want to be thankful, don't we, that God is the jealous God who blesses, so jealous that he goes so far as to deal with our sin. Because the problem for these people in the Old Testament was while they rend their hearts, they never really finally conquered their sin problem and eventually they'd come under God's judgment again. We'd be the same if it wasn't for the Lord Jesus, if it wasn't that the jealous God in his love and compassion gave us his son and he poured out his anger at our sin on that son so that he could show us compassion and grace. He's jealous for us. He's jealous for the relationship with us and he's gone so far as to give his one and only son. It's not like our jealousy, is it? Let's pray and thank God. Father God, we thank you for your jealousy We thank you that you're jealous for relationship with us and you go so far, so, so far in the Lord Jesus 
as to deal with our sins. Father, we pray that you would help us to rend our hearts, to not love these other things that aren't, that aren't God and aren't our Lord. Please help us uh, to see that and, and help us, Lord, to, to love you more fully. Please help us. Amen.